Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Bassini. Before we get into a really great podcast on the NBA Draft with Matt Penny, who runs the High Major Sports Scouting Service and has been watching the 2020 Draft Prospects play for the last five years, I just want to give a quick note on the podcast. As you've seen when you click this podcast, uh, it's no longer associated with CLNS as uh, you probably understood whenever you didn't hear their name, whenever I introed the podcast. They they did an awesome job selling ads on the podcast and being a sounding board for different ideas I had on it uh, for years now. And Nick Elso that runs the company, I'm just super grateful to him for bringing me on very early and being willing and seeing kind of where this was going. Um, uh, this is as harmonious a departure from them as one could have. But uh, the podcast is moving to The Athletic which is obviously where I work now. And I tend to be pretty transparent on this stuff, so I'm just going to lay it out. We came to an agreement on a licensing deal that will see them distribute the podcast on their platforms. Uh, They offered a great deal that allows me to maintain long-term ownership over the show, and it's a great opportunity to expand the podcast's reach into places that uh, I've struggled to previously get to just because uh, for years now it's been an independent show and uh, it's just a great chance for me to try and expand the breadth and uh, everything that we do with the podcast. But uh, obviously you're probably wondering what this means for you, uh, the current listener. And really it's going to be very little. It's actually probably going to enhance your experience. Uh, There might be the occasional short form podcast that we'll put behind the athletics paywall where I'm just like Insta reacting to important news that breaks, but that's going to be it. Uh, The main show is going to live outside of the paywall. And if anything, uh, it's going to get me on a more regular podcasting schedule with at least two per week. Uh, the content of the podcast itself, it could change a little bit structurally, but it's more because of stuff that I've wanted to do for a while. I've wanted to get more players. I've wanted to get, uh, you know, different voices on the podcast. And, uh, you know, it's still going to be the same free-flowing bullshit that you've come to know from me and hopefully enjoy. But, uh, you know, getting draft prospects and coaches and just interesting people from around the industry, I think, would be a really great way to kind of enhance everyone's experience within the podcast. And uh, The Athletic's already been super great about allowing me the freedom to just try different ideas that I have. And, uh, you know, with everything under one roof now, it's actually going to be a little bit easier for me to really explore the studio space a little bit so to speak. So um, I'm super appreciative to CLNS. I'm super appreciative to Adam and Alex at The Athletic and, you know, everyone that works for them for, you know, seeing where this podcast is going and growing and being willing to, uh, you know, bring it on board. And, uh, you know, from the writers and content producers, I'm obviously a big fan of The Athletic and where we're going as a company as a whole. Uh, Otherwise, I wouldn't be signing a deal to stay there. So uh, with that being said, let's usher in the new era of the podcast with Matt Penny, and we're going to talk about the 2020 draft, just like uh, we have been for months and uh, just like we have been really for years on this podcast. All right, we're back, and we're here with Matt Penny. Uh, Matt Penny runs the High Major Sports 
scouting service. He is a former player over at UMass, and I'm just going to give you the floor, Matt, to explain uh, who you are uh, throughout the industry. Also, recently named to Ryan Silver's uh, top, what was it, top 50, top 100 people affecting college basketball, Penny. That's that's something you should. Yeah, be, I think I uh, think it was 100. I think it was 100 most influential, and I'm like a hard 100, not like 99. <laughs> it's, it's right there at a. Man, I mean, I am I am not on that list, so I feel honored to be in the presence of someone who is on that list. So, uh, Matt, I would love to hear a little bit for my listeners about your story and how you kind of got into uh, what you do now, which is really interesting. Sure. Yeah. No. I um, yeah, I was a late bloomer basketball wise in high school. I had a lot of Division two and three stuff. I played JV as a junior, so I didn't really come into my own till late. I did go to UMass just to really be a student and be in the sport management program, which was really highly regarded. Missed basketball a lot, so by the time I was a sophomore, I ended up going to the basketball office and volunteering, and I was a student manager for a year under Steve Lapis, and those guys were let go in the spring of my sophomore year, and Travis Ford came in, and I was head manager there for a spring and kind of wanted his own players by the time the fall rolled around, so I did end up walking on. Played three years. Uh, I was captain my last year. We lost in the NIT championship at Madison Square Garden. So it is a nice thing to say that I played my last, quote, unquote, game at Madison Square Garden despite having a good view from uh, courtside seats on the bench. But after that, I moved on to Northfield Mount Herman Prep School. I coached there for three years. And at the same time, I started in a consulting capacity for Reebok Grassroots. They were kind of bringing back their All-American Camp stuff spearheaded by John Wall. So they had their breakout All-American camp. I started there really in like the product room at camp, just handing out jerseys and shorts. But that was my first kind of exposure back to the grassroots space. And within a few years, I worked my way up, was eventually assistant director to those stuff. So I was able to have more of a national scouting profile where you're finding kids for those type of events that may fall through the cracks or the high major kids haven't really quite gotten there yet. And transitioned the last five years or so to doing similar event management stuff with Under Armour while also running my own scouting service and doing some NBA consulting. So long-winded way of saying really a jack-of-all-trades, master of none, but fortunate to be in, in basketball in a couple places here. No, I mean, I've read your scouting reports. I would not say that you are a uh, jack-of-all-trades, master of none. You are very good in the scouting <laughs> industry and in the scouting yeah, I appreciate industry. it. So... I thought you'd be a perfect person to have on. You obviously, you know, kind of from what you said, you have a better feel for the kids that played on the Under Armour circuit. Your Anthony Edwards is, your Sadiq right. Bays, your uh, Josh Greens and Nico Mannions. But uh, you're certainly someone that, because of your role consulting for NBA teams and kind of running your own scouting service, you get to see a lot of kids. And I would imagine that on some level you've seen every kid that is in this draft live at some point, right? Yeah, a lot. Uh, not as strong with the international guys for everyone else, yes. And I think right. one of the one of the maybe brighter spots of the COVID stuff going on right now is all you have is time. Like all you have is <laughs> the synergy to really watch or rewatch and, and overthink and overanalyze. And kind of like you said, did have benefit of a lot of these kids. It is a kind of Under Armour Association heavier draft. Those guys that have had the benefit of, of me anyway, seeing them play from as early as 15 U and, and go through 16 U, 17 U and go to college. And, and now you're here at the draft. So you have a little bit more of a complete story than if you just kind of 
tune in and you get the SID notes before the game, which is which is a cool thing too. Yeah, no, that's actually one thing that I always try and impart to people as well. These people that just kind of come in and do draft coverage based off of just college production and uh, collegiate situations that kids played in, they're really missing a large portion of the boat. And it's a big reason why I go out to scouting events and why I watch as much tape on high school games as I do, because getting the fullest picture of these kids possible is essential to realizing the context of how they have developed over the course of really, you know, in many cases, even if you're just a freshman uh, entering the draft over the course of the last four years. Right, and I, I think it builds more of a complete story, especially when you see the transformation of these kids as they get older. Their style of play change, uh, you know, maybe their jump shot development changes a little bit. Maybe they get a little taller, they're a little more well-rounded defensively. They add little tweaks to their game, and, and some guys don't. And you kind of see that from a mile away. And then when they aren't as successful in college or maybe the NBA, it's not as big a surprise. I, mean, I think the NBA draft is as hard as anything to do. And you look back at, at old draft boards, and everyone kind of has the same feeling, more or less, going in. And you look back five years, and it completely changes. So it's uh, obviously an inexact science there as well. Yeah, no doubt. And I think that where we'll start our conversation on the 2020 draft is before we get into Anthony Edwards, who played UA, you know, for years and uh, before getting into guys like Josh Green and Nico Mannion, I I just want to pose a very broad question to you. When you were evaluating the 2019 recruiting class. Uh, When I saw those kids, I thought that this was a down recruiting class, which would lead to a down 2020 NBA draft. Do you kind of feel similarly uh, after having seen these kids for as long as you have? I think at the top a little bit. It it was a maddening class for me just because there was this real opportunity for someone to become this consensus number one high school recruit. And it just never really happened. I mean, some some people thought it was James Wiseman. I mean, people had Isaiah Stewart as high as two, Anthony Edwards when he reclassed back to his original class. So there was all these guys that really showed flashes and spurts. I mean, even Dave McDaniels at times, too. Some of the things that he could do in high school were were eye-popping. And and watching him in in Brooklyn at the Barclays Center in a tournament early in his senior year, I think there is some decent depth in there. I think once you look at draft boards, the middle of the first round and and even early second, there's certainly value. But yeah, there's not there's not this home run hit at the top, at least on the surface level. And we'll have to wait a few years to see who pans out because there's always a guy or two. But generally speaking, I think you and I are kind of on the same page with that. Yeah, and you know it's interesting. Like I just went through and ranked my top 50 prospects in the NBA right now, and right. I was trying to kind of formulate in my head where I thought that the best player in this class would fall on that board. And and for me, like I have LaMelo Ball at number one. I don't feel great about that, but I do have him at number one right now. And I think he does have some very real all-star upside if he can realize it. But I think that I decided that I would have LaMelo Ball at like 16, 17 something in that range, and I think that that, as much as anything, speaks volumes about the top of this draft class. There, There is no Zion Williamson. There is no DeAndre Ayton. There is no Luka Doncic. There just isn't that guy that really is going to you know, immediately change the fortunes of a franchise like we often see at number one. Like, I think you can even make a case that, you know, before we even get to Cade Cunningham, who I think is just, like, 
obscene and is so so good uh, at basketball. Just his toughness, his feel for the game, his passing, uh, the fact that he's improved as a jump shooter. Uh, his competitiveness, everything about Cade Cunningham to me screams that that guy's going to be a franchise player. Um, like even someone like Jalen Green, I think would go number one in this class. I think Evan Mobley right. probably goes number one in this class. Um, there, there'd be a real case for me about BJ Boston going number one in this class. Um, I think some people BJ Boston. I think there's there's some NBA people that are really high on Zaire Williams. Yeah, uh, I think if the Jonathan Kaminga does request, I think he definitely has a case for for number one. I think it, it is interesting too when you look back at this class and a little bit unprecedented. Just kind of using the rivals rankings in the top thirty five, there's four guys who transferred this year. Like I, I can't remember yeah. the last time so many high rated guys in Khalil Whitney, uh, C.J. Walker, D.J. Hart, and Johnny Juzang. Like that just I, I think that also speaks volumes of four of your top 35 guys who were more or less a consensus top 35. I don't think people really made a reach for those guys right there have left. And I'm sure you heard just as much as I do. There was whispers of a couple others being yep. maybe not as happy as where they currently were. They're sticking it out. Uh, so it, it has been an, an interesting ride, I think, for the class thus far. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of these kids end up being fed that they're the next star because they're ranked number 15 in their class, right? Well, being ranked 15 in the 2019 recruiting class is not the same as being ranked 15 in the 2020 recruiting class or the 2018 recruiting class. It's just not as strong of a class, unfortunately. And uh, a lot of these kids uh, have some real flaws that they're going to have to figure out within their games. And uh, it's going to be interesting to see if they can do that on the NBA level as opposed to the college level. Uh, In that vein, a lot of these players are just a little bit farther away from being truly competitive on an NBA floor right now than I think some, uh, especially some of the past few drafts that have really seen a lot of guys establish themselves early as players. Uh, You know, even late this year, someone like Cam Reddish really started to figure things out. Kobe White started to figure things out. Uh, Obviously Zion was awesome from the start of this year, but you go back the year before that and you could see uh, Trey Young and DeAndre Ayton and Jaron Jackson established themselves very, very early. So it's going to be interesting to me to see how the expectations game of what this 2020 draft is going to be going number one in this draft, going number three in this draft. I hope it doesn't get to a lot of these players and uh, really stunt their development because a lot of these guys do have real upsides if they can figure out how to realize it. Right. And I think that you're right there. And with the NBA, as we both know, like they just, they're not going to have the patience that a college team will of, of your mistakes. Like you're going to get a quicker hook when you do throw a bad pass or you dog it back on defense or whatever it may be. I also, not to get like too deep and way off the draft thing is I think we're starting to also see this first generation of kids that really have been part of this social media wave where they get so much attention so young that you're right. Like the expectations whether they set them up, set it on themselves or they don't, they're there and they're real. Uh, and some guys take it in stride and improve, and some guys don't. And that's one of the things when I'm kind of looking at this draft and you think of a kid like Nico Mannion who's just had this enormous spotlight on him since he's been 14 or 15 years old, has a dunk go viral, has a little flair to his game, has this bushy red hair, has an article in Sports Illustrated. I mean, he didn't necessarily ask for that, but he's kind of – had this burden of being this internet star. And I think it's a credit to him of how much he's been able to take it in stride and 
fight through overrated chants in, in high school and grassroots events and really still been able to be 17 years old at times. And it's it's a heavy thing that a lot of these kids, I, I know they look at it, they can say they go off social media, but it's uh, it's always there. It's always there. And in the case of Nico, for instance, like by most real people within basketball, they would have looked at Nico's freshman year as a success at Arizona. He Correct. Yeah, absolutely. And, and 14 points a game. Yeah. And started right. 30 games for Arizona right. as a freshman. Arizona, the Pac-12. And I think, again, it's just, it's these early expectations of his dad, Pace, is six foot seven, played six years in the NBA, played overseas. His mom was a professional volleyball player in Italy. I mean, he has the bloodlines. People thought he might grow another inch or two, but you're right. I mean, people just kind of write that off a little bit of his stats of what he did in the Pac-12. Did he have ups and downs like freshmen do? Yeah, of course he did. But I think unless you really, really drive home, like, unbelievable results, people are still going to hold you to this this standard that wasn't created but you just live under. There's that, and there's the fact that because that standard has been created when Nico was young, Nico essentially had to leave Arizona after one year, and now he is in a space where his game, I have pretty real concerns about his game. Like, I worry about the burst going forward and being able to get separation from NBA-level defenders. I worry about uh, his ability to even get all the way to the rim and finish, which he only did once per game in the half court this year. Uh, I worry about his shooting consistency. Like, he's long been kind of a streaky shooter, despite what his reputation is. Uh, just th- You look through the results in high school, you look through the results at Arizona, you see a trend of him not being like a 38% to 40% three-point shooter. He's more 33 to 35%, which is just not good enough for the next level. You know, we can talk about the feel, we can talk about um, the floater game. He has both of those things. Right, but yep. There are some very real things that he's going to have to work out. Uh, and, and is going to have to uh, really, really, you know, work through at the G League level realistically and potentially at the NBA level to where if I'm an NBA team, I probably don't want to go through that. Uh, like, I, I don't want to have to bring Nico along because I don't know if the upside uh, on a guy like Nico Mannion is great enough for me to expend a late first round pick on it. And I, and I think you hit on that too, that he's kind of in that late first round range right now, clustered with a bunch of guards, whether it's Tyrell Terry, if he stays in the draft, Devon Dotson, Peyton Pritchard, it's a bunch of guys that are right there that help to separate themselves. And I, I think that's kind of where some of the workout stuff would have helped him because it's like the old, not oldest saying in the book, the people say, you know, the shot looks good. Like it, he has decent mechanics. The release looks all right. Like I think he'll be able to work on it and hit it at a higher clip. Yep. But yeah, I mean, it, it, it's going to be certainly a process for him. I think he does have a steady hand. I think he does have a very good feel. He has been able to, I mean, I'm, I'm taking a step back here, but from Under Armour, his last summer, Josh Green was hurt. They're kind of like the the odds-on favorites to win the championship. He puts the team on his back, gets him to believe it was like the Final Four. So he does have some of that leadership qualities. He does bark back when, when people talk to him. He's not going to back down. There are some intangibles there, but I understand the hesitation about potential ceiling of it. Yeah, and I, I just wish that – someone like Nico would have considered going back to Arizona for a second year and it not be considered a failure. You know, like if the problem with 
the situation that Nico Mannion was in was if Nico would have decided I have to go back to Arizona, it would have been considered a failure publicly. And that's unfair to Nico. It's unfair to Pace and the family and everything. But it's a realistic situation, especially given that Arizona went out and recruited over him, essentially, with James Akinjo. I don't know if James Akinjo would have started over Nico Mannion, but they certainly went out midseason on, uh, I believe it was New Year's Eve, and got a commitment from Akinjo saying that he is going to be their starting point guard next year. Like, it it becomes exceptionally difficult uh, for someone in the position of a Nico Mannion to return, and that kind of sucks just given what we saw from Nico this year and just given uh, where his game is right now. Yeah, and I, I think for a lot of guys, too, it's it's almost the expectation on the coaches that they're one and done before they get to campus, before it they is. play a game. So, uh, so I think for college coaches, too, they have to go out and be like, well, you don't want to lose a kid of that caliber, your starting point guard for an upper echelon team, and then be looking around at each other when it's normal time to test the draft waters, I know this year's kind of on its head, the kid declares and then, you know, you're, you're kind of looking around like, all right, well, now what do we do? Uh, you know, your schedule's not going to get softer because you don't have a, a starting point guard returning. So it, it's just the culture that we're in now, especially the basketball culture, it's here and now. And the development, yeah, it, it, the people in the G League do an incredible job. And, and to your point, some of these guys, maybe a lot of these guys, are going to spend time there. And can they make the jump from – year one to year two. I mean, we've seen guys do it. How many are really going to be committed to that process and how many are going to turn off the switch once they get drafted and think this is it. Yeah. And, you know, we'll close on this with Nico. I'm going to be very interested to see what his whole situation looks like next year. Uh, He is someone that I have some concerns about being pushed into a G League setting, if only because, again, like you said, this is a guy whose dad played in the NBA for six years. Uh, you know, he's grown up around the league. And if he's been, was at Arizona this year, who provides every single amenity possible, a kid like that is going to be thrown to the wolves in the G League where, uh, A, all of those dudes are trying to bust Nico Mannion's ass because they've been hearing uh, for years now that Nico Mannion is the next really good point guard. And then additionally, you know, this is a kid that, hasn't had to experience much failure in his past. And while he has been very uh, willing to embrace who he is as a player and been willing to, uh, you know, bark back whenever he hears that criticism, he also hasn't been in a setting like the G league where he isn't, you know, frankly coddled, you know, like kids at Arizona are taken care of kids at, uh, you know, where Nico Mannion went to high school uh, are coddled. And, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how someone like that reacts to being in the G League where it is a lot more difficult uh, and not nearly as glamorous as what, uh, you know, he is used to as a player. Sure. And and I agree that's the point that he does have some dog in him. I think he'll be able to, to fight through a lot of that stuff. And if you go and read any of these guys who are assigned down from, he wouldn't be the first I mean, to be a, a high draft pick and spend some time with the G League or two-way. And Sometimes for those guys that are down there, it, it can be eye-opening, and they say it's back like it's AU and grassroots days, and you're staying in these hotels and, and busting from here to there, but it's uh, it's eye-opening for the time you are not in the big show and you're working your way back up. So let, let's move on, and I'll just kind of ask you this. Who is your favorite prospect in this draft? 
Where am I drafting? Is this just like a blanket statement or is this? Yeah, let's let's start with you have the number one overall pick. Who are you drafting? And then I'll ask you who is your favorite value that you can see, you know, being someone that, you know, if I'm down at 20, I just want to take this guy. But let's start with the number one overall pick. Who would you take? I think it's LaMelo. I do. and I've gone back and forth on this. I really like Anthony Edwards, too. Um, I, I see the, the upside and the creativity that LaMelo does off the pick and roll and watching stuff in Australia. It's a little bit younger. He's grown into his body. It, it is hard from guys in the grassroots space who've seen it because you just do remember him being one of the, the three <laughs> ball brothers kind of playing not from free throw line to free throw line, playing like half court to half court, like taking right. one step over, you know, one step back and chucking up. And his game really is a completely different player than what it was. Um, I know Anthony Edwards would be right there too. I mean, as explosive as a scorer when the light's on and he's playing downhill, I like a lot of things that he does as well. But I think that with the success of guys from creative guard spots like a Luka Doncic that you don't want to miss – on someone like that, of that ilk. I'm not saying he's Luka Doncic by any means, but bigger playmaking lead guard types. Yeah, and that is a big part of the reason that I do have LaMelo at number one as well. Um, The big thing for me with LaMelo is, yeah, the first time I saw him play, I was at the Adidas Championships probably in 2017. That'd be, it was while I was still working at CBS, I think. So it might have even been 2016. And he was playing with Lonzo, Leangelo, and I was seeing Tina and LaVar on the sidelines. Um, they were playing like in, as like that independent team in the Adidas Championships. And here is this kid who is, God, he had to be 14 at the time, so it probably was 2016. Uh, here is this kid taking 35-foot three-point oh, yeah. jumpers who can barely, like, he literally couldn't lift the ball over his head. Like, he wasn't strong enough. He was like five Yeah, no, eight. it was a push shot but, but yeah. beneath his chin, you know, kind of like throwing out his, his arm like a chicken wing. Like, didn't look good, wasn't pretty. It was incredible. It was like kind of, it was kind of amazing to watch. And even at that time, I remember LeVar saying that he thought that LaMelo was going to be the best out of all of them. Um, I, I do think that remains to be seen, but I think that, He is the guy out of that family that I think has the highest upside. And it's because similarly to what you said, LaMelo's ability now off of the live dribble as a ball handler, I think actually exceeds anything that we've seen from Lonzo. Because that was always kind of the sneaky thing that people didn't necessarily recognize with Lonzo is that he has tight hips and he can do a lot of the like, you know, shoulder shake stuff and can do a lot of the crossovers. But when he crosses over, he tends not to go anywhere because he has pretty stiff hips. He can really only cross over to get to his step back as opposed to crossing over and getting downhill. Uh, LaMelo is exceptional with his ball handling ability in his ability to get downhill off of crossovers and then whip one-handed live dribble passes and spray the ball all across the court. Like it's this combination of being lethal off of a live dribble mixed with the vision uh, in the basketball IQ and feel for the game to be able to find guys in very advantageous spots for where they can create offensive uh, play. Yeah, and I think his game kind of fits the the newer style, the newer trend of the NBA, too. As you're saying, the pick-and-roll stuff, coming off, finding shooters in the corners, does have vision. I mean, is the 
competition level he played there the strongest? No, but you do certainly see things that are intriguing. I, I am interested to kind of see how he adjusts and has a, a rotating athletic seven-footer coming down the lane, and you can't right. necessarily have the same floater type of stuff and finger roll stuff and off leg, and you can't cheat as much. And I think there is some even defensive stuff there that he can get better on. I, I think he would get away with some stuff on the defensive end, but it's not like there's no tools there that he can't fine-tune and at least be capable there. Yeah, the mechanics defensively are an abomination. Like, he is so bad on defense in terms of knowing how to stay low while keeping your arm up uh, while closing out to a shooter. Like, he just gets driven off closeouts all the time. Um on the backside, you'll see him like wiping his feet when he's supposed to be tagging a roller uh, coming to the basket. And it's just like, oh, well, I missed this guy. What can I do? I'm just going to yeah, get the ball you. and try and score. Uh, it, like that shit drives you nuts, but it's also stuff that's fixable in a real way, right? So you have to hope that you can figure out how to make that work because there's some feel for the game defensively. Like he makes the right reads. He's. I mean, look, like I just explained one situation where he's not competent in rotation in terms of tagging, pick and rollers, and then being able to recover out. But like, he's not like totally out of position all the time. Like he does know where he needs to be. It feels like the brain uh, does seem to be uh, at a really, really high level defensively. It's just that he doesn't know how uh, to do it mechanically yet and doesn't care to do it because he wasn't really asked to do it. Realistically, throughout the course of his entire life. That's part of it, too. Yeah, right, exactly. And that's what I was getting to is, like, if if you really were playing half-court to half-court, chucking 35-footers two years ago, you're not going to come in and be this defensive stopper or know how to deny, have the weak hand up. All that stuff, I think, will come in time, but I'm I'm not as worried about that, per se, as as some people may be. Yeah, I mean, the guy who kind of flipped that for me was Ben Simmons. Like, I remember watching Ben Simmons and thinking, this guy is just atrocious on defense at LSU. And it's because he didn't care. And now he's one of the five best defenders in the NBA. Uh, Especially, yeah. Yeah, especially if you uh, have that feel for the game. I kind of think that if you have size and you kind of know where you need to be and you have good instincts, you can figure some of that stuff out. I'm not saying that LaMelo is going to ever be anything like – Ben Simmons has become defensively. I don't think we've seen those flashes, and I don't think he has the intersection of power and body control and explosiveness that Ben has to become that high-level defender. But there's at least some signs there that he might not be just this abject mess like he was in Australia. Sure. So let's talk about Anthony Edwards, because you brought him up uh, as someone being in the conversation, and you've seen Anthony a lot, uh, having been on the UA circuit for as long as you have. And I'll just kind of give you the floor. I mean, what is your evaluation on Anthony Edwards right now? Well, Anthony, to what you're saying, we just had the opportunity to watch him grow from the 15U level, 16U level, all the way up to 17s. And when he was playing 16U, it's when you kind of saw him starting to fill out a little bit. He looked like a high major guy. He was in the 2019 class. He was going to reclassify to 2020 because he was a little bit young. And he was really good to dribble, slashing, finished around the rim, wasn't quite as athletic as he is now. Shot maker, but wouldn't say necessarily like a, a three-point shooter. And he made a big jump the next year, the next summer, uh, before, well, during the season, before the spring. And he came out with a real chip on his shoulder, like, okay, I, I'm ranked here. There's a lot of guys that are ranked higher than I am. Like, I'm coming for you. And many times that he did. And he had 
I think it was April of 2018, there was a game in Indianapolis, and I was sitting watching the first half, I want to say, with Brian Snow. He'll hold me to that if it wasn't, but B. he Snow was just, was just okay. on the podcast last week. We uh, we are – no, screw Snow. Snow's, Snow's out. Yeah, he We're just sent me Snow. an invoice for fantasy football, so <laughs> that's a different story. Uh, so anyway, I think he had like a slow start in the first half. I went to watch another court, and – I saw him back in hospitality about an hour later. He's like, how about that performance? And like, I don't, it was fine. I don't know what to talk about. It's like he finished with 43 points and double the threes and <laughs> went back and watched on Synergy. And he was just doing whatever he wanted to and kind of stamping like, I'm here, whether it's 2019, 2020 or whatever. So I'm intrigued that he is a, a late bloomer in that sense. He has a six nine wingspan, does have athletic gifts. He grew up a football player. I know that story has been told many times, uh, but really has the ability to score out of isolations, knows how to take smaller guards in the post to score. Do want it to be a little bit more consistent, but there is intrigue there because you need guys in the NBA who can go out and get a bucket on their own at times. Yeah, and in the case of Edwards, one thing that just stands out immediately is his ability to just blow by. Uh, there are very right. few guys that just their first step is so fast and so explosive that you just believe that this guy is going to get by the man in front of him regularly, especially in the well-spaced out NBA. I think Anthony Edwards is that guy. Now, why didn't he do that more often at Georgia? I think it's kind of a combination of two different things. So first, Georgia's floor spacing around him was shambolic, let's say. It was disastrous. Good, good like, terminology. Yeah, they shot like 29% from three around him, and Anthony himself shot 29% from three, so teams kind of, I'm not saying that they played totally off of him, but they were more comfortable with him shooting threes than they were driving them, uh, and then he was driving directly into help off of other guys, and I think that that made his life a little bit more difficult. I will also say, I don't think his ball handling is very good right now. I don't think he has enough uh, acumen. I don't think he has enough versatility as a ball handler right now. He is basically either just a straight line driver going forward to get downhill, or he's going crossover to get to a step back. Uh, that is going to have to change for him. I think that is the number one place that if he's going to reach his ceiling, he's going to have to become something real as a ball handler because otherwise, you know, I'm not saying that he's like, there. there's some Dion waiters there. Uh, in regard to his game, just as being a bigger, thicker guy who can get buckets and can get past his man with that quick first step. But he does have some real concerns in terms of being able to do it uh, in a way that fosters positive, uh, coherent offense at, when it refers to him being the guy who's stirring the drink. I also think the spacing is going to help a lot, which you touched on. I mean, I think similar concerns. I'm not saying he's Jalen Brown, but there's similar concerns with Jalen Brown as a cow. You yep. know, can he Absolutely. can he do this? Can he do that? The shooting's not there. And then I'm in Boston, and, and I was kind of shocked when the game was more wide open. It's like, holy smokes, this is the player we saw in high school. I mean, he was yep. fantastic in high school, and Cal is just okay. And now he's a legitimate star in Boston. So I, I think with Anthony, the way the game is played, the NBA will to his benefit too and he can get up and down he does have that burst he he can sneaky know how to read his man go back door dunk on guys um i've heard the Tion waiters comp as well you know i think people throw around is he have some elements of Dwayne wade elements of donovan mitchell i mean maybe it's a, a grab bag of each of those i i'm yep. not the best 
comp guy in the world either, and I think it's it's a crazy thing that people try to say, yeah, that guy is him. Um, but yeah. he, I, I do think he still has his best basketball ahead of him too. Yeah, I do agree. Uh, it's going to be incumbent upon him to work for it. Uh, when we saw him on the court this year, I don't think he really gave enough of a shit, to be honest. Like, you watch him defensively. Uh, there are just so few possessions where he was really down in a defensive stance and really wanted to make an impact on that end. Um, when he wanted to, like at the end of games, he could force all sorts of problematic shots. Like he was actually really good defensively when he wanted to be on the ball. But it happened like 4% of the time, it felt like. And for him to actually make an impact at the next level, that mindset is going to have to switch and it's going to have to flip. Uh, otherwise that Dion Waiters idea does come up. Like the other name that you didn't mention that comes up regularly is Victor Oladipo, right? Um, you know, guy that Tom Crean coached and has a very similar body type, six foot uh, four, six foot five, somewhere in that range. Vic's a little bit longer, uh, very powerful yeah, frame as well. But, uh, you know, Vic was the Big Ten Defensive Player of the Year at Indiana and was – uh, a very clear All-American. Anthony Edwards wasn't that this year. And uh, another portion of it that he's going to have to iron out, I don't have as much concern about the jump shot as some people seem to, but there is that like little mini hitch in the jump shot. I'm mostly positive on it just because uh, I do believe that he's going to be able to work it out. And the fact that he can get to that jump shot with his strong ball pickup uh, is going to be effective for him. Long term, like I think he's actually going to figure that out. But there are enough concerns here where I'm like, this guy is not a surefire, uh, you know, all-star two guard in the way that I might have thought coming into the year. Like I thought Anthony Edwards was very, very real coming into the year, and uh, this year flashed some concern points. I guess is what I would say. I'd say flashed both ways. I do think For sure. once he gets the NBA, NBA, there will be some tightening and. He, he did go to Georgia, played for a great coach in Tom Crean, didn't necessarily have the same firepower around him. So, yeah. like, I think a lot of his deficiencies were just came to the forefront because there were times he had to do everything. There were times he had to force bad shots. There were times that he probably rested on defense because he was exhausted from the play before. It doesn't justify it, but I just think that more of those things were easily spotable based on the situation that he was in. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's, it is really easy to pick apart someone like that just because he's the only guy on the floor that's like a real genuine NBA prospect right now. Um, it is worth mentioning that like when he gets hot, there was like not a better show in college basketball this year. Oh, like no, when, I mean, he, when he got going, Howie, yeah. Yeah, like the, the Michigan State performance to me in the second half was the best thing I think I saw this year. I think it was literally the best performance I saw in college basketball this year. Um, when he gets going and has that rhythm, has that confidence – uh, with his jump shot, there just isn't anything better. Uh, the way that he can absorb contact around the basket just due to that powerful frame, the way that he uh, changes explosiveness and quickness into power uh, around the basket is extraordinarily impressive, and I think it's going to be something that allows him to translate at the next level, at a high level. Uh, it's going to be incumbent. I keep coming back to, though, it's going to be incumbent upon him to work at it, though. This is not a, this is not a surefire situation with Anthony Edwards. 
Right. I, I think when we look at the draft, too, I mean, kind of how we start this conversation, I, I don't think there's a, a surefire number one. I don't know if there's a, yep. a surefire all-star. There's a lot of guys I like, but, like, there's not this, this grand slam number one pick this year. That's all. And that's not a that's not a, a slight at any of these guys. It's just or for all of them, there are some question marks there. So let's uh... – Let's jump to the second part of that question that I posed yes. earlier. Who is your favorite guy in this class? You have pick, you know, 25 where you're just like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm throwing my hands up. I'm taking that guy because that guy is who I trust and who I believe in more than Man, trust. Trust at 25 is uh, uh, <laughs> that's that's heavy brain seeing that you just like tore apart the class for uh, That's a good point. <laughs> yeah. Everyone's stink, but who do you like who stinks the least? Right. Um, but like for instance, yeah. like Xavier Tillman, right? Like I really like Xavier Tillman. I'm like, this guy is mature, this guy is gonna be able to step in and be a long term uh rotation player in the NBA. He might not be a starter, but uh you know, defensively, in terms of the way he knows how to short roll and make plays out of passes, like I would say like Xavier Tillman is my guy in this class that I'm just gonna go to bat for, right? Who do you who would you say is your guy? I don't know if I have a my guy, but I really like Isaiah Stewart. I feel like we're yep. overthinking him a little bit. Uh totally plays hard. I think he'd be a rotational big. He has some intangibles. He's gonna come in. I think he's gonna fix his jump shot. I was talking to someone the other day about it and I don't think he's Montrez Harrell, but, you know, Trez doesn't really shoot shots, and he's not the athlete of him, but can he be in that mold of that ilk, like that yep. type of player? Uh, I think he can, and if he's drafted there to a contender, he could be a guy that's a really good piece that we look back in a few years, and it's like, why wasn't he taken earlier? Yeah, like if I'm – if he falls to, like, what is it? It's uh, – what pick does Denver have? Denver has, like – uh, uh, 21. If he falls to Denver and he can just play like the backup tough guy role behind Nikola Jokic and they can get a backup center behind Jokic for cheap that they can trust, that's like a no-brainer pick for me for Denver. Like, it, it just fits everything that they're looking for. I totally agree with you that everyone's overthinking this with them. Um, from, from what I've been told by NBA people, they seem to think the jumper isn't even broken. Like, he just didn't shoot no. it a lot this year. Right. Like they, they think that, like, there isn't even really anything to fix. He's just going to shoot it at the next level. Um, and, that, and that comes from people that have seen him at practice. And, uh, you know, he didn't obviously take – I think he took 23s this year and made five of them. But, you know, it's such a small sample that it's really hard to get a strong feel for it. But you talk to NBA scouts that were up in uh, Seattle this year and saw him shoot, and they were like, yeah, he's going to shoot it. We don't know why he's not shooting right now. It's basically just because he's so good at carving out space on the inside probably. But, uh, yeah, I think that he's going to shoot it. I think that he's going to be an awesome pick-and-roll player. The thing that worries me most about him, it's not even the um, the mobility on defense, although I do think that is a real concern, given the fact that we just didn't get a chance to see it this year, right? And maybe you can provide a little bit more insight uh, having probably seen him a little bit more than I did, even though he was on the EYBL with City Rocks. Um, what worries me is that he just doesn't have a feel for how to pass it and like play within an offense. Everything that he's done so far has been catered to him. And we just haven't seen him ever be asked to make plays for others in a tangible way to where he's going to be a piece of an offense in the NBA. He's not going to be the offense. I wanted to see more of his passing ability this year uh, out of double teams, on short rolls, et cetera, and we just didn't really get a chance to see that. 
we didn't get a chance to see that. I think that was also where Coach Hopkins thought he would be the most effective, and I tend to right. agree with him. So uh, I don't think it's that he can't pass. It's like I don't think we've necessarily seen him in situations where he could really show that. I mean, right. he would get a quick touch, try to turn over his shoulder, score in the post. Like I don't think he was stepping out to do dribble handoffs and take the guy off the bounce or, or read a back door if a guy's overplaying. I, I think he can be able to adjust to some style of play in those offensive schemes that are so prominent in the NBA. Well, and the other thing worth bringing up here, too, is that anyone that you talk to about Isaiah Stewart, they will just go to bat for who he is as a person, his character, his work ethic, more so than almost any player in this draft class. Uh, there are very few guys. Like I, Tyrese Halliburton's on this list. Um, uh, you know, Trey Jones is pretty high on this list. Devin Vassell is on this list. Uh, there are a lot of guys that – uh, people consider to be elite, elite, elite level character kids. And Isaiah Stewart is unquestionably on that short list. And I think he's just going to work until he figures it out at the NBA level. I do. And uh, it could be one of these situations where guys are kicking themselves in NBA front offices. And down the line, these stories come out. And I joke with my friends about this, that at the Sloan conference in 2016, Brian Scott Brady famously said the Celtics had Draymond Green third on their big board. It was Anthony Davis, Jared Sollinger, and then Draymond Green. It's like, well, okay, well, if he was third, he went, what, 35th or, or something right. like that, 36th. Why wasn't why wasn't he on, on everyone else's boards? And we're all guilty, whether it's rankings for the NBA draft, whether it's rankings for high school kids, international projects. Everyone's kind of like within – the same five picks or so. No, nobody right. looks totally different on this. If you put them next to each other, they would look pretty similar. I'm by no means saying that kids should be a top five pick, but I'm just surprised there's not more buzz outside of that kind of like 20 to 28-ish range. Yeah, I've got Isaiah at 16 right now. Um, I'm totally Okay, with you. that's not bad. Yeah. Yeah, I think he's just going to be, a, if not a low-end starting center, uh, I think he's the, – the defensive concerns are there, uh, but I think he's going to be around the NBA for a decade, and in this draft it's really hard to find those types of players. Um, let's talk about – before I let you get out of here, let's just rapid fire on some guys that you saw uh, up close on the Under Armour circuit. So the first guy here would be Precious Achua. Yeah, so Precious, rapid fire here you – know, by rapid fire, level. like it can be like a minute or so, <laughs> two, like whatever, okay, whatever you want to take. So, so he played. He started to play with New Heights uh, on our circuit. He played 15 U all the way up. When he was at 15 U, the knock was well, he's old. Uh, he was more of he swore he was a wing. It was a lot of bully ball stuff. It was a lot of driving through guys, yeah. and then really started to shape his game once he went to Mount Bird Academy. Played with Kevin Boyle there, and bought into being this energy small ball four or five, which I'd never seen before. The first time I saw them play, I was like, "Who is this guy?" The talent was always there. He's kind of embraced more of what he is. He's rebounding at a high clip, uh, and and I see him kind of as you know this line of the death type guy where he's smaller but can play the. Five can switch, can switch on wings, can hold on guards for a little bit. So I, I, I see some, um, I, I see what a lot of teams are kind of have him in the first round for that perspective, I guess. Yeah, similarly to Isaiah Stewart, I have him at like 17. Um, totally buy it all on defense, actually, given where the NBA is going. Like I think he, could, I think that motherfucker can just guard. 
like everyone right. on the court, right. <laughs> especially given his motor, given how hard he plays. He cares about winning, I think, is a big thing. Um, on offense, there is some concern uh, from NBA people I've talked to that he still does just want to be that wing type of player and wants to get it on his own uh I guess the way to put I it think on if, his he's, own if he's bought in before, right? I mean, if he's right. bought in before and it's like this is going to take you to get here, you had to change your game stylistically to to get where you are right now. Like it probably is going to have to happen again. And with him offensively, he's never going to be your number one option on the floor. But right. if he's a high level defender and can still get you a bucket here or there throughout the flow of the game, I think that's a win. Yeah, and it's also worth noting too among the you know seven high conference teams. I don't know if we're going to call it high major or what we're going to call it between Big Ten, Big Twelve, SEC, ACC, Big East, Pac twelve, and AAC. Uh, Memphis had the best percentage against at the rim this season defensively. Uh, yeah. They allowed teams to shoot like forty three percent or something ridiculous at the rim. Uh, then you throw in his switchability. I think he is a, a very, very real defensive prospect that should get a little bit more attention from uh, evaluators on that end. I do understand the offense, though. Like, it, it, he's going to be, like, a dirty work guy early, and he's really going to have to buy into being a dirty work guy. Right. Sadiq All right, rapid Bay. fire, next button. Who you got? Yeah. Sadiq Bay, uh, another interesting one. I, I feel like every kid I'm talking about here is the late bloomer, which is fine. But he was six foot two before his junior year of high school. He played for D.C. Premier in our circuit. It was kind of like this forgotten man because he played Prentice Hub, who plays point guard for Notre Dame, Jermaine yep. Harris, who's at Rhode Island, who is a, a high major big. So he, he was steady. He, he could make shots, pretty good body control, but he was skinny. He did get invited to Under Armour All-American camp. I think he finished ranked around like 120-ish or so in the country, but really worked on his body. I mean, he had a good shot. I think you could arguably say it's a great shot now. Mm-hmm. And learning to do more, a little bit off the dribble, some short posts, some pump and rip through type stuff. So he's certainly gotten better. Uh, I was surprised at how much better he got and became the primary scoring option at Villanova. Yeah, I mean, Villanova's development staff is ridiculous up there. They're they're just so good. Uh, in Sadiq's case, the only thing I worry about is just like some athletic explosiveness stuff, but I think he's going to be a really good role player for a long time. Uh, I've, I've got him at 15 on my board right now. I am a, I'm yeah, a so fan it, of Sadiq. It, I'm a fan too, and I think a lot of people say he's one of the, I know you say your concerns, but one of the better defenders in the class yep. too, and at least cerebrally and can kind of fit into some different schemes there as well. Yeah, totally agree with you on that. Uh, his feel for where he needs to be rotationally is really strong. There. The name that got brought up with me by uh, two different NBA executives was Jacob Evans at Cincinnati, another guy that was a really good defender, but just didn't have the foot speed to really stick with perimeter players. Uh, And he's probably going to be out of the NBA within the next couple of years, uh, unless he like really shows some very strong developmental acumen. I don't think Sadiq is that slow. And I think because he's longer, he's probably going to have an easier time than Jacob Evans uh, defensively at the next level. And I think he's going to be able to make an impact there. He'll make an impact. And and I think as crazy as it sounds like the ability to really consistently make shots, the NBA, you'll stick around. You'll, you'll be somewhere. You'll be in someone's rotation to come in, even if it's for seven to 10 minutes a game, we we could be drastically underselling him here, but I think his, his floor is still pretty high. Yeah, I agree with you. RJ Hampton. 
So RJ played with us before his his last summer. Uh, really, really athletic. Works. Uh, he's intriguing to me. It sounds like he's become a forgotten man in the draft a little bit, which is interesting because he was such he was so well regarded and heralded as a prep prospect, just yep. always in that conversation, top five to seven. I know that he understands his jump shot needs work, and he's holed up with Mike Miller working on it. It looks a little bit cleaner, comes off his hand a little bit easier, and he's hitting it at a higher level, granted, versus no defense at a gym, but he knows what he has to get better at. He thrives in an open system. I think it's a great piece for an up-tempo team, uh, and I am curious to see kind of what his fit will be long-term and, and what style of play the team drafts him. I don't think he's Anthony Simons, but I see similarities in their games to an extent, I guess. Yeah, RJ is a fascinating one because I hated his tape this year in the NBL. Like, I thought he was bad in the NBL this year. Uh, he was bad defensively. Uh, the jump shot was a total mess. Uh, just didn't make an impact offensively in the way that he moved the ball. He wasn't ready for that level of competition, I didn't think, unfortunately. But the flashes still existed where you could see that lightning first step. You could see him get out on the break and get in transition and really be effective. And going to what you said, everything I've heard about his work ethic is also really strong. Uh, everything that people tell you about who he is and how much he cares about the game, everyone just kind of talks about that as if he's going to be someone that you can trust to improve in like a really substantial way. I'm, I'm really struggling with him a lot. Uh, he is probably the guy on my board that I am struggling with the most right now in terms of where to place him. Yeah, I've seen him really all over the place. I don't know exactly where you had him, but yeah, I've got him at 19 for what it's worth. Okay. I mean, I think that's a good pick at 19. I think the tools are there. I think it's worth a value pick at that slot if you can get somebody with the upside that he has, that if he does figure out his jump shot, he could be one of the 10 best players in the draft. There's a possibility there. The defensive stuff, I get the concerns there. Uh, also, being that young, playing professional basketball, as we talked about before, is it's not the easiest thing to do. And it, there was a adjustment transitional period for him going to another country and, and playing. Uh, Josh Green. Josh Green. Uh, I think Josh Green, to me, is one of these guys who his buzz and his stock will improve once teams actually get him into their facility to work out. He is a freak athlete, high-level athlete, run and jump, long wingspan. I think his shot is going to look better in private workouts. Uh, on our circuit, winning really meant a lot to him. Tim and Nico Together, they, they didn't lose off them, but when they did, they took it very hard. I think you nailed it on, I want to say your big last big board. No, 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 I think maybe your last mock draft. He seems like this type of guy that goes to Oklahoma City where they have three or four of these similar type guys and just figures yeah. it out. Yeah, his on-ball and really off-ball defense, he fell asleep a little bit off-ball, but his on-ball defense uh, is exceptional. That dude, that dude just cares. Like, he really does want to win. Like, you can just see it um, in such a real way. I think he's going to – like, I have him at 35. I probably need to pu push him up a few spots on my personal board. I think he is going to go in the first round. Uh, and I do think that he is going to make something of an impact on defense. I don't really love the shot as much as you seem to. Uh, I, I think the mechanics are going to take some pretty substantial work. To iron out. I don't know if but, I said I don't. Yeah, I don't say I love the shot, but like I've seen it look better than the numbers would lead believe at Arizona. 
Arizona. And when yeah. he was at IMG Academy his last year, I had the same concerns. I don't know if he can shoot. And I went to a few games, and granted, it's a different three-point line. I'm like, that's not bad. If he can hit corner threes, run the lane in transition, play defense on ball, block some shots, like there's there's an NBA role for him. And w- once you get to the end of the first round, too, when you have a bunch of point guards and him, he's a type of guy that it's like, all right, that's not a bad flyer to take there if you're a contender. Yeah, and he plays on the wing, so it's going to be a little bit easier to get him on the court as well. Right. Like these point guards, it's just hard. Uh, everyone's looking for wings. The positional scarcity of wings across the NBA is still real. Uh, I probably have Josh too low, to be honest, right now. Um, Jemias Ramsey. I love Jemias Ramsey. I really do. Uh, he played with us with Texas Hard Work before he left for UIBL his last year. He's got some real dog in him. He wants to defend. He's going to dive on the floor for loose balls. He's going to play hard. And I think, like, this year, he got a little bit of a bad rap for taking some bad shots and just becoming a jump shooter. I don't think offensively that's necessarily what he is. Yep. I don't think he's Marcus Smart, but I think he's a poor man's of that type of version where it's like come in, defend, score a few buckets here and there, have somebody else as a primary facilitator, creator. I just think he had to take on much more offensive burden. So there was times like, eh, I don't know what we're going out there. But another guy that really cares, a lot of intangibles, he was a um, follow-up to the guy I like at the end of first behind uh, Isaiah Stewart. Yeah, I we disagree on this one pretty heavily. Um, yeah, I know you're not a fan. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I don't really see it defensively with him. I think it's a pretty real problem. Uh I don't see the Marcus Smart stuff just because I think that Marcus, while they do have similar body types, well, I mean, like Marcus, Marcus is like an, an, elite, an elite defender, like the NBA. I'm not saying it's him, but I'm saying that right. that mentality, that approach to the game. Yeah, even the athleticism, though, like Marcus is like a freak athlete uh, in a way that I don't really see from Jemias. Like I think that Jemias is like a little bit ground bound in terms of explosiveness vertically, uh, not hyper quick even. He's just very thick. In, in that way that Marcus is, but doesn't have that same power that Marcus does. Um, or that, like, you know, we can name any number of, you know, high-level defenders, too. Uh, I, I worry about him on that end uh, quite a bit. And then on offense, I do agree with you. I think he is much more of a driver slasher than what we saw this year. But, I mean, I, if he's – like, I don't think he's the shooter that he showed this year. Uh, I, I don't I think, either. Yeah, and like you said, like you agree with that, and so he is going to have to drive. And I don't know if he has the first step quickness. I don't know if he has the like he's a straight line driver that doesn't have like a wild first step. And I'm not as convinced on the jump shot offensively. Like I, I'm not saying I wouldn't draft him. Like I I would take him early in the second round, but I'm not yeah, that, quite that, as. That's confused. kind of what I'm saying in the third yeah. range. I'm not I'm not jumping and saying he should be 12th and everyone's missing the boat here. Right. Like I'm not. Uh, Hyper enthusiastic about him, I guess. Um, Cassius Stanley. Cassius Stanley played a year with West Coast Elite. He is another similar freak athlete, and I'm sure you've seen some of the stuff he's posted recently on Instagram, which I think is smart because guys can't have workouts of tools that he has, especially yep. vertically. He went through this kind of like transformation where he thought he was a point guard. Uh, he's not a point guard, and I was surprised. I thought he had a much better season at Duke than I anticipated that he would. But yeah. open system type of guy uh, can get up and down the court. I, I see what people like in him. 
I'm concerned that there is still some of that thinks he's a point guard stuff there. Uh, Doesn't that get shook a little bit, though, when you go to the NBA? They're like, hey, you got to stand in that line, not this line, like you're not a point guard. I hope. I I would absolutely hope that'll be the case. From everything I've been told, Cash is like a great kid. Uh, You're not going to have to worry about him rocking the boat or anything. So I would think that at some point he's going to realize he's not a point guard um, and will be a wing. And will be an effective wing if he really buys into that because he is a joke athletically. Like first step, explosiveness vertically. Like Like, it's a it's a total joke. And we go down shots at the rim. I I don't I don't think the point guard thing stays with him. I really don't. And I think this year at Duke was was pretty telling as well that he became comfortable in his role and embraced what he was supposed to do up there. And he had some really good moments. Yep. Yeah, I have him. You know, similarly to Josh Green, Jamias Ramsey, right in that range. Uh, just the athleticism and the ability, like you said, to buy into the role that he did at Duke this year. I loved that. Like, I, I thought that the energy that he showed was really great. Um, I will just throw names at you and tell you, ask you who your favorite of these guys is. Skylar okay. Mays, Tyshawn Alexander, Najee Marshall. I really like, I like all of them, actually. But Skylar Mays, to me, I think it could be another value pick where – Yep. He had to do a lot of stuff offensively. I think he shot like 49% from the field, 39% from three, 85% from the free throw line. Has to limit his turnovers, but again, well publicized. He comes from a medical family. His dad's a doctor as well as a nurse. He majored in kinesiology. He's a very smart kid, and I think he's going to figure out a way to make an impact and make a roster. Yeah, first, uh, or was a two time first team all academic. Oh, academic, kid. yeah. Right. In college basketball, um, teams that have done interviews with him have just come away, like totally blown away with who he is as a person. Uh, he is an awesome, awesome kid that uh, I think is going to get drafted. And I think is, like you said, probably going to make a roster at some point here. Uh, the last name I'm going to run by you is Kareem Mane. Uh, I am not really a fan of his for this year. I get the appeal, like six foot five. Looks to have very good length, I would say, something in the range of like a 6'9", six, 6'10", six, wingspan. Um, I don't really see the feel for the game and the uh, shooting ability and just the play finishing ability that you need to be able to declare for the draft, in my opinion. Yeah, he's an interesting one, too, in that he kind of came out of nowhere. I don't think anyone knew he was as talented as he was when the circuit started his last year with Under Armour, and then he started piling up these high major offers. I hadn't watched him closely enough, and then I did. I really liked him. I said, okay, you know, it's a high major kid. And then what's happened a few times at the National Prep Showcase, which Adam Finkelstein runs to start the season, every year around that time, something leaks out like, oh, this guy is draft eligible. And they yeah. had a hard <laughs> time with that with that spotlight, right? So it's like, Hamadou Diallo played and struggled. Uh, Anthony Simons, I mean, he was – it wasn't really a surprise because he knew he graduated high school. I don't know if it went over people's head, but he was coming off a wrist injury for the IMG prep team. He was just okay. He was really bad his first game. Uh, so the most recently I saw Kareem was there, and the first game he really struggled. You could tell he was kind of carrying this weight of, okay, there's NBA guys here. i got to be really good. He wasn't. I, I just didn't think he was ready right away to make that jump. I think it would be a really good – player in time, like you said, but I was surprised when he kind of popped up on draft boards some places in the 30s. I thought that was a little bit um, a little bit of a leap. Yeah, uh, I don't get that at all, like 30s. I think that's like totally bananas to me. Um, I, I don't have him ranked in my – or I have him at 95 now that some guys have decided to not declare. 
Uh, I totally get the appeal of him uh, as a guy who can handle it a little bit and who is six foot five, has some athleticism, but he's a he's a project man. Like it's going to take some time. Yeah, no, it, it will take some time, and I, I think all of it still was kind of new for him, too, because he wasn't a guy that thought he was going to be an NBA thing, and, and people kind of put it into his head, and I think the testing the waters is intriguing. I mean, he was a sleeper and played in Quebec, and, and nobody really knew about him. Yep. Uh, had a late growth spurt, has long arms, sturdy frame, all that. So he checks boxes, surface level, but, yeah, probably needs another year or two before he's there. All right, Matt, I'm going to let you go. Is there anything you want to uh... – just shout out before you get out of here. Shout out. Uh, I'll shout out to Brian Snow that I will pay my invoice soon for fantasy football. <laughs> uh, no, that was it. I'm glad glad we come on here. Glad we could talk some poops. Love to do it again sometime. Yeah, we're going to have to do this again uh, at some point within the next month. This was awesome, Penny. Uh, this has been the Game Theory Podcast presented by The Athletic for the first time. Penny is the first podcast guest uh, over here at The Athletic. We will be back, uh, I think, on Friday. I think I'm going to do another one on Friday here uh, to take you into the weekend. But until next time, we'll talk soon. Bye.